Hi, and welcome to the When Women Fly podcast. Each episode, I have poignant conversations with women who fly, run, surf, ski, climb, or otherwise soar, and possess a passion for life that is infectious. These are honest and insightful conversations about dreams and reinvention, often in the face of uncertainty, doubt, or other impediments. We talk about busting paradigms, grit, working hard, and playing hard, all while building a community around the empowering metaphor of flight. I am your host, Sylvia Winter, a pilot, runner, mother, skier, list maker, and apparently podcaster. I believe that when we share our stories, own our fears, and dismantle our perceived limitations, the possibilities are boundless. Whether you're pursuing your passion or simply love the idea of possibility and wonder, this podcast is for you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Let's get started. Today's episode is a conversation with Lexi DuPont, a native of Sun Valley, Idaho. She lives with a passion of merging skiing, filmmaking, flying, and a commitment to leaving a positive impact on the people and places she visits. As a professional big mountain free skier and a pilot, her connection to the outdoors and adventure is so much deeper than just a profession. She uses sport and movies to bring attention to issues in the environment. Lexi had a wildly successful entry into competitive free skiing on the Free Ski World Tour and the Red Bull Cold Rush about a decade ago. But her charge for skiing big mountains is best appreciated in her appearances in Warren Miller films, including Wintervention, Chasing Shadows, Line of Descent, and Future Retro, released this fall. There are a dozen other ski movies, but we spend time talking about the movie she directs and stars, Shaped by Descent, an epic account of her annual spring ski trips to Haines, Alaska. The legacy of aviation and flying small planes is nothing new to the DuPont family, and Lexi talks about how her family history plays a part in inspiring her love of flying and her motivation to use flying as a way of highlighting social and environmental issues. We talk about, as women, the collective need for daily support and affirmation of each other's knowledge and credibility, the opportunities and constraints in being an only in the previously male-dominated outdoors industry, and opening access to more diversity in the adventure sports. She's a beautiful person, driven by hope, optimism, passion, and a strong pull to heights and the mountains. Enjoy this conversation with Lexi DuPont. Lexi, I am so psyched. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat. So, Lexi, how do you like to be introduced? That's a good question. I've, you know, I sometimes feel that titles kind of trap us into a box <laughs> and we're so much bigger than the descriptions that we give ourselves. But I guess some of the words I'd use is um, big mountain skier and pilot. I'm a filmmaker and outdoor enthusiast. Perfect. You grew up in Sun Valley, and I'd love to just start our conversation there and the influences that you had there, including your parents. Yeah, totally. Sun Valley, I'm so honored to be from Sun Valley. Let's just put it that way. My parents, my dad's from the East Coast. He moved out to Sun Valley and met my mom. She was a professional freestyle skier and one of the first ladies to do a backflip on skis. Yeah, so they just, you know, back in the 70s in Sun Valley, having a good time and raised my sisters and I. I have an older sister and a younger sister. And kind of, you know, skiing was a big part of our lives. It was how we interacted as a family. It was like, if you weren't coming skiing, then you weren't going to hang out with us. <laughs> mm -hmm. I just, uh, I really want to give a shout out to your parents. I feel like the downstream effect of making decisions that align with your values. As a parent, I can really relate to the fact that you don't always know what's going to happen downstream, but you and your boldness and your approach to life that really follows your heart. I just wanted to give a shout out to your parents and, and your mom. I mean, your mom, like your mom was pretty badass, right? I mean, she was doing backflips for Smith you know, before women were doing that. Totally. Yeah. And K2, that's um, actually, I've, I've been skiing with K2 for the last 11 years. And it's 
kind of a big attribute to my mom. She put us on skate K2 skis when we were really young. And so it's pretty much all I've skied my whole life. So it was an honor to join that team. But yeah, I just grew up looking at these pictures on the wall of my mom doing these big laid out backflips, you know, the high ponytail over Lake Tahoe. And whenever I had friends come over, that's like the first thing I'd show them was the pictures of my mom doing backflips. But my parents, you know, they really instilled a lot of really great values in me and my sisters of the appreciation for the outdoors and living simply. And yeah, I I just have immense gratitude for them making those decisions for us early on. So how would you describe your connection with the outdoors and adventure in in sort of a big general way? I mean, that's my safe place. It's my happy place. The mountains will always be there for us no matter what. And throughout my life, whenever I've had like tough times or anything, you know, I'd go up on the ski hill and just take a couple laps and get out of my head. And it was, it's always been there for me in that way. And I also, you know, we'd go camping when we were kids. That was what we did on the weekends. And we turned off our cell phones and phones and TVs weren't really allowed in our house. It was, you get home from school, you go blow off some steam, play in the backyard, put on your snowsuit, roll around, build a snow cave, come back in, do your homework. But yeah, TVs were for Sunday mornings. That was about it. <laughs> if you weren't a ski team <laughs> or you weren't camping or you weren't doing the other 100 things that we were all doing. So did you test that a little bit when you decided to go to college in Massachusetts? Oh, yeah, for sure. It's uh, Growing up in Sun Valley, I was on ski team, right? I, I raced the whole time all the way until senior year. And then I kind of wanted to test out this whole other world that my parents exposed me to, which was the ocean. We spent a lot of time on the East Coast in the summertime and learned how to sail. And so I had a college scholarship to sail at Endicott College in Beverly, Massachusetts, and spent a year there. And at, you know, after that first year, I, I really missed the mountains. There's just a difference between you know West Coast and East Coast mountains. They're both beautiful and amazing. But I just had this strong calling to be mm-hmm. in Colorado. So transferred to the University of Boulder, Colorado, where I started on the Freeride World Tour. And I remember my first contest was in Telluride, Colorado. And I podiumed that, that contest and was like, wow, this is so much cooler than racing. Just the vibe. Like I loved racing for everything that it was. It taught me my foundation of skiing. But there was just this freedom that I had to like put my own mark down the mountain and go wherever I wanted to and express myself in my own personal way. And that really spoke to me. And that's kind of, you know, that, that lit my fire to mm-hmm. become a big mountain skier. And so then after that, it kind of happened, started happening really quickly. I got sponsored by K2 and Eddie Bauer. I was already riding for Smith Optics at the time. And I got a call from Warren Miller that my first year. And they're like, do you want to go to Svalbard, Norway, which is 400 miles south of the North Pole. (laughs) And so you're how old at that point? I was like just turned 18, I think. (laughs) I mean, I just rewatched that last night and... I was so little. Oh my gosh, you were such a kid. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I was so little. And I'm like, wait, what'd you say? Like, Svalbard? Where's Svalbard? I had to like pull out a map and they're like, yeah, it's 400 miles south of the North Pole. It's the farthest north you can ski. And you guys might be the first people to ski it. And you're going to hop on a snowmobile with a team of six adult men and go sleep in a tent in sub 30 degree weather on an f- ice fjord for two weeks. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> I'm game. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was so excited to go. It was definitely, you know, I had done a little bit of backcountry uh, winter camping. The school I went to in Sun Valley has a really awesome outdoor program, the high school. I learned how to build snow caves and lived in snow caves when I was younger. But this was a whole nother level. I mean, it didn't get above minus 30 the entire time we were out there. And you're also, you know, so far north, you just have 24 hours of daylight. When did you go there? What month would you have gone? This was, I think, end of April. Yeah. And so you're just watching the sun move 360 degrees around the horizon. That's crazy. Yeah. There's this part in the film where Reggie Christ, who's actually now my brother-in-law at the time, he was my mentor. He still is my mentor, but our families are very much connected now. 
he's putting sunscreen on at three in the morning, you know? And it's like, we'd look at these lines and we're like, oh, that's going to get light at three or 4 a.m. And you're like, okay, better take a nap right now because we're going to be up all night. And see how we snowmobiled for two days. Oh, wow. All the way north. And we had to tow all our fuel on the snowmobiles to keep going. And then we set up this awesome tent camp. And then we boot packed couars for, for like two weeks out there. Wow. What an experience. So that was really cutting your teeth with this big mountain stuff in a way that, uh, yeah, you had to have learned so much from that experience. I learned so much and I want to go back so really badly now with the knowledge I have, because I think at that point I was just like fully thrown to the flames, you know, and I really, um, I would have a lot more appreciation now for it where there, I was just kind of like holding on by my fingernails. But, you know, when I look back at that video, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. It's the coolest trip of my life for sure. And it was my first one. Yeah. So you, you, it's hard to um, compare to that probably. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So the big mountains have drawn you in ever since you uh, had exposure to actually going out in the deeper way, I would think. Right. And yeah. And so then. I mean, you know, you, yeah, you ride the resort, you're on the chairlift and then you look around no matter what mountain you're, you're skiing, there's mountains all around that resort. And I just, you know, I love standing on top of those resorts and being like, oh my gosh, it's endless out there. Let's go. And you can go so far on your feet or with a snowmobile or with a plane. <laughs> right, right. Or with a plane. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's the next step. So how did you balance your college with your skiing? It's a great question. <laughs> I was on a six-year program at University of Colorado. <laughs> Six or seven, just kind of summers and... Totally. I, uh, I took the winners off because when I was competing, we didn't have to drive all over the country and only had, yeah, I, I couldn't keep up with my classes. I, I tried for a year and I just was failing because if you miss more than two days, they start, your letter grade goes down and you're like, wait a second. So yeah, I'd go to school in the summer times and uh, it took me six years to graduate, but I did it. And did you study film there? Um, I studied art history and screen printing. Yeah, the film part and filmmaking has kind of come into effect after graduation. But the arts program at University of Colorado is so amazing. And screen printing is my passion for sure. I guess for the film, what just popped in my mind is my English teacher in high school, Phil Huss. I remember his name. He's the best guy ever. But he taught me how to write and gave me such a deep passion for writing really well. And he's written many books himself. He's incredible. And I think that really sparked my storytelling and now doing it through film. Yeah, that's really neat. So speaking of film, um, tell us about Haynes and how Haynes has been part of your life for the last decade. Oh, yeah. Well, right now it's kind of a little bit of a sore subject. Yesterday, they had a crazy flood come through and these the mountains fell down yesterday in the town. So I've been trying to get a lot of fundraising going for them. Yeah, it's like, come on, 2020, what's next? Just a landslide. Wow. They got four feet of snow last early this week. And then it rained like, I think, 10 inches in 36 hours. And yeah, so the, the mountains just crumbled. So our hearts and prayers are with Haynes, Alaska. But Haynes is, has a, such a special place in my heart. It's in Southeast Alaska. And it's some of the most impressive mountains just, just shooting straight out of the ocean. And the proximity, the peaks are so close to each other. It's like a bookshelf, spines. <laughs> and you don't have to fly far. You go over one ridge and it's just like the mecca of big line skiing and spine skiing. So yeah, I went up to Haynes 11 years ago. Again, so young and, and new to the whole big mountain world. And I tell people that I sold my soul on that first year to Haynes and I made a I, I signed a contract with that place that I would return every spring, no matter what. Do you use that as a benchmark in a sense? Yeah, it's, you know, I think goals are really important in holding ourselves accountable for our dreams. So that's something that really rings true to me is to make that a priority to go up there. So take us on a day in the life of a filming 
filming trip like that. And, and, and so, so, yeah, so, so, you know, the routine, but also, you know, what is it that you, what is it like, right? When the helicopter leaves and you have this silence and you're this little speck on, on top of a rock <laughs> high in the sky above clouds and above everything else. And then how do you just drop in? Yeah. Haynes is, wow, it's such a powerful place. I mean, you just, you fly in there and you feel the energy. It's so special. Okay. So a day in the life in Haynes, Alaska filming. We wake up at about 530 because <laughs> the springtime sun is rising super early. And it's about like, we'll get like 10 to 15 minutes in the morning to get out of the house because you, you know, you got in late the night before. So you want to sleep as long as possible. Right. And so we're in the helicopters taking off probably at 6.30, just before 6. So we drive down to the airport. We hop in the helicopter. We've got our crew. We're snugged in tight, shoulder to shoulder. And we take off. Uh, You know, before that, I kind of walk around and do as much stretching as I can, swing my legs, put on some music. We usually like blast some rap music out of the car as we're putting our boots on (laughs) to get pumped up. And then we fly over that first peak. And usually we try and do one warm up run. So we'll point out a peak. It's literally, that looks beautiful. Let's go there. And the athletes are pointing from the back and they're telling the pilot where to go. And we'll circle over that peak that we want to ski. And then we'll land on the shoulder next to it. And we usually try and do one little test the snow. So we're looking for something that's the same aspect of what we're going to ski, but at a different angle, a little bit more manageable. We do one warm up run. Then we get to the bottom and we'll have probably 15 minutes at the bottom, 10 to 15, where we get to pick our line on the face of where we want to ski. And at that point, the film crew's taking the helicopter doors off the helicopter and burying them in the snow. And we I mentioned Reggie Christ earlier, who I went to Svalbard with. Um, He's my guide in Alaska and my brother-in-law and my mentor. And so Reggie's so good at being like, all right, I want you to point out every single turn where you're going to put each turn. So he sort of coaches you through thinking about the turns and how to get there and probably critiques that, gives you some feedback. Yeah, he gives us feedback and he's like, you know, we pull out the binoculars to look at snow texture. Because, you know, when you see the dappled snow, you know it's going to be a little bit softer than when you see the shiny snow. What aspect is where it's going to be? Because you're coming in, when you're skiing these lines, you're going as fast as you can. And so any wrong error, any wrong turn could be a fatality. Like there's when you fall on these mountains in Alaska, you're going to the bottom. There's no stopping. So falling isn't really an option. And what's the drop from the top to where you finish your run? Yeah, it's probably, you know, a thousand to two thousand feet, but you're doing it in like a minute to three minutes, depending on the line. So it happens pretty quickly. So then we're ready to go. We get in the helicopter, depending on the landing. Sometimes we'll have this our snow skis in the helicopter with us. Cause sometimes the peaks are so sharp that the basket there where you put your skis will be hanging off the edge of the mountain. So you won't be able to reach them. And so we call it a nose in where the helicopter will just, people are like, so you jump out of helicopters? And it's like, no, that's actually illegal. They have to have a ski on the ground, one or or both on the ground at least, to release the static charge of the helicopter as well. So you've identified the line you want to drop. Yes. Okay. So you have identified the line. You're in the helicopter. You fly up, put the nose in, you so gently, like cat-like reflexes, crawl out of the helicopter as gently as you can because he's holding it, balancing the pilot is. And then you have your friend because it's usually me and you know one other female or something and they pass you your skis and you're like four feet below and they pass you the skis. Dig your like Wolverine yourself into the top of the mountain, like kick and grab onto as much snow as possible. And give them a thumbs up and a big smile. And then the helicopter dives away. And the snow, you know, is blowing and it's super loud and crazy. And then it dives away and it's just like this silence. And you get to, I just take that moment of like looking around and 
really just feeling all of the collective energy of the earth, like shooting off of the peak. And I just feel a part of that, that energy shooting off the top. And then I think the most, the scariest moment, honestly, is that from there to putting my skis on. Because you have to, you know, make a nice platform. If any, if you drop any piece of equipment, if you kick a ski off, it's going, it's, it's gone. I feel so much more, so comfortable with my skis on, with rather my skis off. Yeah, right. So as soon as I get my skis on, I'm like, whew, relief, you know? Yeah, now you at least have that tool. And then, but then mentally, right, you're still a speck of dirt on top of a rock high up in the sky, right? And with this tiny little bug on in this massive mountain range. And yeah, those mountains are huge. So then there's, um, you know, the helicopter will go back down to the bottom, pick up the film crew, and they fully rope in to the helicopter, hang out the side of the door. So you just hang out, you hang out there for a while. You hang out there for a little bit. It might be, it's a couple minutes, really. They're pretty efficient. And hopefully, you know, your partner, your friend is on the peak next to you. And sometimes we'll have these silent mornings where we can totally hear each other. But she's like so far away. I can barely see her, but like the echoing of the mountains, we can talk so clearly. Wow, how surreal. So we'll just like pump each other up up there. Sometimes you're pulling out your, you know, your phone and playing some music. (laughs) Just to calm the nerves. Dancing is really important for us breathing to just like let that energy out. Then the helicopter comes back over and I call this the disco ball moment because it's like this helicopter is a disco ball above you and you get to dance and perform. And the filmers will give you a leg kick out the door of the helicopter and that's your signal to go. And at that point, it's, you know where you're going to go. You've studied it. You've taken that picture from what you saw at the bottom and what you saw in the helicopter. You put it in your mind and you have to hit every single mark. There's no other options. So you, you just have to have so much confidence and you know exactly where you are. The level of precision and mental focus. Totally. That's, that's taken the longest for me in Alaska. I mean, I've been up there for 11 years and if you talk to any Alaskan skier, like that is the hardest part is flipping that view from the bottom to your, to the top because it looks opposite. You can only see four feet in front of your tips. You know, you're not looking at the whole face when you're standing on top. So you have to have memorized. Yeah, you memorize everything. Wow. And then it's, then you're reacting. Sorry, I'm almost, you're reacting. You're just, your instinct is taking over. You're reacting. You're flying down the mountain. And it's almost like that flow state taps in people talk about where like time slows down. And then the, the best feeling of the whole part is when you're flying out the bottom and you did it safely and you hit your line and you did exactly what you wanted and you give your, your girlfriend, your boy, the other partner down there a huge hug. And and you go back for more. Yeah. Then you, you do it again. Do you do a few a day when you're up there? Yeah. I mean, the, the optimal light, light is a big part of filming. So we like morning and evenings. But yeah, I mean, one of my best sessions, I was up with Sammy Carlson and we did nine runs in an hour. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we were so in that flow state. Like, wow. Yeah, totally. We crushed it. That's been hard to beat. So, in the 10th year of your pilgrimage, you came out with this movie. And tell me about that. And that obviously was both a creative expression for you. Gosh, it's sort of a celebration of Haynes and the people there. Totally. Yeah, so I, I made a film last year. It's called Shaped by Descent. And I, I guess I just had this realization that my Reggie, again, my mentor, pointed out to me. He's like, Lex, you've been the only female up here for a really long time. And you've been the most dedicated female to coming up here consistently. And I had all this footage, you know, 11 years of skiing and first descents and so yeah, they really pushed me to make a film about my 11 years in Alaska and Haines. And for me, I really wanted to highlight the place as much as possible and how special it was to me. So, and I kind of, you know, there's some parts where 
it says like first female descent. And I was the first female to ski it. And I kind of grappled with that. I'm like, does that even count as a first descent? If it's a first female descent, are we like, I know climbing does it all the time. No, it's a, it's an important topic, I think, right? It, if labeling the label of first female is relevant and I think there's no right or wrong, but it's it can seem irrelevant when you're a human doing this thing that no one has done before. But on the other hand, bringing attention that hasn't previously been there to the fact that women can do this does seem relevant as well. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I've got a, a handfuls of first female descents up in Alaska. <laughs> and are they first human descents as well? There's a few for sure. Yeah. More in Svalbard. Svalbard, we really got got a lot up there for sure. But yeah, I, I owe so much uh, thanks to the men that have paved the way and have shown me and taught me everything that I know up there. But I really, my favorite part in the film is, you know, this transition of when the females come into the, the picture. My friend Tatum and Michelle, we had a, such an amazing trip together. And that, you know, when you have females working together, you really come into your power. A lot of times when I'm skiing with men, I'll watch them ski this gnarly line and I'm like, oh, well, that's because they're a dude. I come up with some kind of excuse of why I couldn't do that. But then when I'm out with females and I watch Michelle or Tatum ski a gnarly line, I'm like, oh, sh- <laughs> shit, I got to get up there. <laughs> I got to go do something just as cool as that, you know? And there's the encouragement too. Like that we come down and we're like, oh, you totally got that. Like, Of course you can. Like, of course you're nervous. I'm nervous. We're both nervous. Let's like yell and howl and get the nerves out and then pull your bootstraps up and get up there. Yeah, I think the camaraderie is so important amongst women. And it's, you know, we need both our male friends and our women friends, but there is something really special and non-competitive and just fun. It's just fun to do things with women. Your films definitely express that as well. Oh, thank you. Let's pivot to travel. I know you've traveled a lot. It's been a big part of your skiing. You've also been driven by more mission-oriented projects. So tell us a little bit about more, one of some of the more memorable experiences for you. Yeah, traveling. My parents have really instilled travel as an important thing for us. And growing up, we'd always you know, to have spring break and we get to go to these on these awesome vacations and around the world. And that was just a priority. It was like, they didn't really want the like consumer aspect of buying things. It was like, let's have experiences. And on top of that, if we wanted to go somewhere later in life, it was, you had to do service work, like go and volunteer, like give back, do something amazing. So My first experience with with that, I went to Cambodia for my senior year in high school and volunteered at a um, street children's orphanage, specifically working with sex slaves and sex trafficking young women, peers, like girls that were just a couple years younger than I was. And I did that for six weeks. And it was just this big eye opener to where I had come from and how privileged I was and how the majority of the people on earth are living on a dollar a day or less than that. And it filled me up. I think I gained more from that experience than the people I was working with just because I had so much gratitude after that. I came home and I, you know, got rid of everything in my closet. I didn't want to drive my car. I wanted to ride my bike. Like I just, it felt that transition coming home was like so shocking, culture shock. Yeah, the re-entry from experiences like that can throw can take a while to integrate into the life that you left. You're like, wow. Yeah, you almost you can there's a sense of resentment, but then also appreciation and realizing that, you know, one they're just different. One isn't better than the other, they're just different. So that kind of sparked this thirst for me to go and help people and my younger sister and I, we went to Africa and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro as a fundraiser for this wonderful Kilimanjaro Kids Care run by Make a Difference Organization. It's a center for AIDS orphans. And yeah, that was super cool as well. And what about the skiing trip you did in Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan? 
Oh, Kyrgyzstan, yeah. My friend Nyla and I, we went to Kyrgyzstan and we lived with a Muslim family for just over a month. And we brought 50 bags, 50 pounds each filled with ski and snowboard equipment. You know, we, we've seen in Nepal, the trekking industry has been super beneficial for the people there. And Kyrgyzstan has some of the most amazing mountains ever down in Southeast Asia. And so, yeah, we lived with the Muslim family and taught people how to ski and gave avalanche courses and medical courses and tried to started this like small guide program to empower the local people to bring people there and share their mountains with others. And has that, was that a durable project? Are they still doing that? Yeah, they totally are. They're still doing it. I mean, I think that's a big part of this is like, instead of going to a place and telling them what they need, like ask what they need. Giving back and impact has been, seems to be a bigger and bigger part of your life. Can you speak to that and, you know, maybe your family of origin and how that plays into it as well? Oh, totally. I mean, that's when I grew up, it was like, you'd get an allowance and you'd take $2 out of your allowance and put it in a piggy bank to give to some organization. And that was started when we were super young. And my parents, that's, we have an amazing families foundation that gives to hundreds of different organizations. And I've served on the auxiliary board of that foundation, got to do a bunch of visits to the different, you know, people that have submitted for, for help. And it's a deep part of who we are as a family and how we want to influence this life for sure. And that's played over for my, my personal life too. How do you navigate the paradoxes of the privileged life that we sit in and, you know, some of the legacy of DuPont and the name that you have? Yeah, it's definitely been a tough one throughout my life. It's like, yeah, I've gotten a lot of people that think they know me or make assumptions. And I have a really good practice with it, though, because it's been, it's not like I just became a DuPont in my late 30s, 20s. It's like I've been one my whole life and it's been a part of who we are and something that our parents have told us is going to come up throughout our life. And yeah, I guess it's what I'm most proud of with my family is the innovation. Like, I mean, I can see it right here in our chat right now with all of the products we're using. However, when they saw that they were creating CFCs that were destroying the ozone with refrigerators, they stopped production. And I think if I go back to putting myself and my aunts or my uncle's footsteps or my grandfather's, it's like they're really good people and they were trying to better the world. And they made some mistakes and hope I think that's just it shows the humanness of it. Mm-hmm. And for me, I you know, I have this very powerful strong last name and I want to drive the attention of the people that have assumptions. I want to start those conversations, show them that I live in a tiny home in Sun Valley, Idaho and I live sustainably as possible. I give back, I do what I can to counter some of the things that I love to do, such as flying, just doing the best I can. And I'm open to conversations and educating myself and hearing perspectives. Mm -hmm. I did an article with Forbes magazine, and that was one of the best things I felt like I could do because I was able to talk to that audience of the other side that have these assumptions of DuPont and kind of flip them on their head and show them that no matter where we come from, we can make our own choices today to move forward in an environmental way. I would think that you have access to attention given the, the last name that you have and the legacy there that you actually can make change by doing just what you're doing, right? And not being afraid to show up and have those difficult conversations. And But a lot of it comes with scrutiny and sometimes public scrutiny. And, um, you know, I think that is something that you you do have to sort of sit in. But you know, you could also ignore it, right? Yeah, but I don't want to ignore it. Like, I find when I have conversations, whether it's on Instagram and someone's, you know, said a really hurtful thing and I'll immediately go to their page and ask them, like, can we talk about this? Like, where does this come from for you? And why do you feel that way? And just hear them out. Sometimes they get really nasty and explode. And then I, you know, have to silence myself and 
block, <laughs> block it out. Yeah. There's a point where it becomes vitriol and not a conversation, right? Yeah. And I think that's a big part of, you know, we've seen this big division, you know, politically in the last couple of years here in the US and we need to reach our hand across the aisle and hear each other out. Yeah. I mean, I was reading some of uh, Brian Stevenson and one of the things that he says that I feel like you embody is a push to be hopeful. And he says something like, if you're not being hopeful, you're part of the problem. And it's with hope and this visioning that not perfect, right? Not perfect and, you know, not complicated, but without hope, we are part of the problem. We're all human. We're all just trying to do our best. But, you know, the environment is so important to me. And I realized that there's been a lot of damage that has come from my family's name. And yeah, I'm trying to, yeah, change that as much as I can. Yeah. And tell us some of the ways, like phys- what you have physically done to change that. I have worked with Protect Our Winners. I've spoken with Congress people trying to get these environmental action bills passed. I have built a fully sustainable off-the-grid house that is fully hydro and solar. That's been my latest project. It was a big one. I learned so much, but I'm so proud of it, living sustainably and trying to influence people to do so. What else? I made this, I went to Standing Rock and I, I, up in North Dakota, and I protest the pipeline. And I, you know, stood there with these beautiful tribes and heard their stories and tried to make them as loud as possible. For people who don't know about that in Standing Rock, um, tell us a little bit. So Standing Rock, they is in was it's in North Dakota, the Sioux tribe. They wanted to put a pipeline through the oldest burial grounds in Native history up in North Dakota, like right through where all of their ancestors are buried. And it's devastating. Also above one of the largest aquifers in North America. And, you know, no matter what oil pipelines want to say, they're like, oh, it doesn't leak. Every pipeline leaks. I mean, every truck, every car you have is going to leak a little bit. It's definitely gotten better and improved, but they're all going to leak. And water is such a valuable, valuable source for us. That kind of really inspired me realizing that I'm a skier and a surfer and I'm a water worshiper. And I made this film series called Water Worshippers just for that reason, to celebration of water and how precious, precious it is for us. Mm-hmm. I feel like Europe has gotten on that train and bought into the importance, the critical importance of water and environmental health. And we seem like we're behind this in North America. We're so behind. We need to make big changes. I'm really excited about this. We'll see if it happens, but you know, just Biden talking about sustainable and renewable energies. Hey, it's it's a hopeful, a hopeful place to start, right? So now you're sort of intersecting activism and film and sport. Is that the direction you see the next five years unfolding, diving deeper into those type of projects? And then I want to talk about flying. Yeah, flying. For sure. This will actually segue into flying. Perfect. One of my, which, you know, you're like environmental and flying airplanes. You're like, I know. My Aunt Alice was the first woman to fly down the Amazon back in the 20s in an open biplane in Waco with a paper map and a compass with her um, brother, Richard. And why did they do that? They, well, Alice had heard this song on the radio that said, you haven't lived until you see an armadillo and a jaguar. And so that really sparked her, her interest. Like it was just full adventure. No one's been. Let's go. I'm 23 years old. Sounds sweet. And this is 1931 or two or something. Yeah, yeah. She was in her in her 20s. They're also delivering an eyeball to this biologist who's down there. Critical mission. Critical mission. So it's so wild. When I was in my flight training, my dad gifted me her journal. And I was like, oh man, I have to do this flight on the Amazon. Wow. And then now, you know, I'm studying my, for my instrument here, which we'll dive into, but he gifted me the film of them flying down, which is now some of the first footage we have of the Amazon River in history for America. I, well, they were the first ones to go. So yeah, it's pretty insane. 
It's so cool. Lexi, that's awesome. Yeah. What a what a coming together of so many different things. As a filmmaker, adventurer, pilot, I was like, I have to redo this flight of Alice and Richard down the Amazon. Yeah. The eyeball was really great at the time, but I want to incorporate this environmental action. And now having this old footage of what the rainforest looked like before paralleled with what they look like now. There's also this organization that I, I was talking to. They're called Eye on the Amazon. And they deliver, they're looking for planes to deliver cell phones because a lot of the, um, the cell phones get put on the trees and they set off an alarm when they hear poaching of the rainforest being cutting down. A lot of rainforest deforestation comes from poaching. So when they hear the chainsaw, they set off an alarm and you, they can get out there and protect that area. And it's called Eye on the Amazon. You know, these things just start coming together. Conservation International is hopefully going to get on board. We've had a lot of conversations. There's a lot of other pieces that I'm really excited to share about at a later time. But that seems like my life's work right now. In this film, it's just bringing everything together for me. So you have a history of aviation in your family. Yeah, I do. My dad, I mean, I grew up in the back of my dad's 180, flying around, tail drag around Idaho. But he, his family, all of his brothers and sisters, they raced airplanes in high school. My grandfather, Alexis, who I'm named after, huge in aviation. He's actually in the Aviation Hall of Fame in Washington. And his brother, Richard, invented the glider. And his sister, Alice, was this Amazon flyer. Yeah, that's, that's what my family was into, was flying. And they were pioneers when it came to aviation. Back in the day, the U.S. Postal Service would hang bags of mail between two posts, and the plane would come down with a big hook and pick up the mail. And my Uncle Richard was the one that invented that process. So, so there's just a lot of history there. And also, we've had a lot of tragedy as well when it comes to flying. So my generation, my cousins, there's only two of us that are pilots. And all of our family before that was, they were all pilots. So I think they've kind of, I had to search for these stories. They weren't something that were told to us, you know. I've had to do all the research. Even Alice's wasn't part of family? Not really, like a little bit, but it wasn't as much as I would have hoped. After hearing it, it was, it's so amazing. And I was like, why hasn't this been? Wow. There's such a big story behind that. I mean, there's this, the story itself, but there's so much behind who she was and how you approach life during that time with that type of vim and vigor and moxie. Totally. Whenever I have a moment right now in my training and I'm like, what am I doing? I'm like, okay, what would Alice do? Alice, like, she would just go for it, you know? Right. She did not have a glass cockpit, right? Um, so let's talk about you and flying and it's fairly new that you are flying yourself. Totally. Yep. I'm currently in Bellingham, Washington, completing my IFR training. It's been such an awesome place to learn IFR. We have, I per currently have five hours in IMC, which has been so wild. It's so good. There's so many clouds there. We can, you can really learn. Yeah. A lot of clouds. A lot of weather. The mountains are right next to the sound. You're flying over the islands. How to fly in the clouds. Well, the islands. Yeah. And a glacier at the same time, you know, in the same flight. I started flying in Sun Valley. I got my private out in Idaho in a 182. And then I'm out here in a 172. And as soon as I complete this instrument rating, my next goal is floats. Because I'm going to with need floats for the, the river. <laughs> Mm -hmm. What did she fly down? She was in a Waco and they would just land on the river and drop an anchor and tie hammocks in the wings and sleep in, in the hammocks. Yeah, pretty wild. Wow. Exactly. I hope the snakes didn't come get cozy with their snakes and bugs. The more I, I learn about aviation, the further this goal gets away. I was like, oh, yeah, I'll do it in like two or three years. And now, as a fellow pilot, training takes a long time and there's a difference between currency and adequacy. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of planning, right? There's a lot of proficiency. Proficiency, that's it. Yeah, currency and proficiency are very different. Yeah. 
I mean, hey, call it a life goal, right? Just move the the timeline. I think it's a story that needs to be told right now too. Like it's a female story. It's a legacy. It's environmental. It's, I don't know, it's a kind of this Amelia Earhart and Indiana Jones type of story, but with a larger impact. Yeah. You know, there's that, the story itself. And then by telling the story, you're also revealing that there are so many other stories that are not told, right? I mean, if this is in there and this story has never even seen the day of light, there's so many stories out there. If women were to tell history, they would, they would just be different stories out there. So I think that's part of our mission, right, is to, to spread that. I want to get under the hood a little bit with you, Lexi, and just understand how with all of your passions and your love of life and just getting out there, how does balance show up in your life? And if there are any routines or if you want to speak about your Ayurvedic integration and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's so easy for us to drain ourselves. When you have so much thirst and hunger for life, you can get pulled in so many different directions. So yeah, for me, my morning routine is so important to me. It's waking up at the same time. Like I try and get up early. I feel sleep schedules really help. You know, exercise is important for me. Diet is important, but sleep is my number one. Like I am an eight hour queen. I need my eight hours. (laughs) But I wake up, I drink some lemon water. I do a moment of gratitude and meditation. And then I should say before that, I brush my teeth. One thing I've learned is when we're sleeping, we, all of our toxins, our body naturally cleans itself at night. But in the morning, it gathers in your mouth while you're sleeping. And so that's, you know, we all wake up with bad breath, but that is actually your body's cleaning itself, which is a deep, you know, Ayurvedic historical note. Do you do you scrape your tongue? Yeah, scrape my tongue, brush my teeth. First, put some lemon water in because our body is super toxic or acidic first thing in the morning. Water is really important to have before your coffee. And then I usually, you know, the morning time is when my brain is the most fresh. I try and whip out some emails or some studying. And then my my workout routine has become super important to me. I used to just do it in the summer and the fall to get ready for winter as like a injury prevention. But the last couple of years, I've tried to keep it up throughout the winter a couple times a week. And it's crazy how much I used to get sick all like quite frequently just from traveling and exhaustion. I'd get, you know, sore throats or headaches and stuff. And I find that exercise has kept my immune system really strong. Just flushing things through. Yeah. And also there's other practices I'm Totally. I'm sure changed the way your body could build an immunity as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the meditation, the morning routine, the sleep schedule. Yeah, it's sort of just honoring your body, right? It's like, thank you for bringing me through the 20s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the 20s, I was not very nice to my body, let's be honest. Right. So was there, on a, was there something that then was a wake-up call for you in terms of taking care of your body? Or was there just sort of a did you kind of hit the brakes before you hit the wall, realizing that you needed to hit the brakes? No, I, I hit the wall. I slammed into the wall. Yeah, it was adrenal fatigue after Alaska one year, where I got back from Alaska. Was I mean, we had one of the best winters, springs up there in history. And we skied a lot, and we got really into some hairy situations. And I was exhausted, and I got back, and I just it was like two weeks of just sleeping. I couldn't get out of bed and I, my adrenals had been shot and my immune system crashed. And luckily in Sun Valley, where I'm from, they, we have amazing healers. And my healer, Cal, Cal Miller, she's been giving me acupuncture since I was in the womb my whole life. <laughs> I went and saw Cal and she's like, whoa, your pulse is so weak. Like, you know, we need to check into this. And then she introduced me to this amazing Ayurvedic healer, Juanita, who was giving me some really awesome uh, panchakarmas, this ancient Indian tradition of diet and routine. Started doing that and started this this crazy cleanse of only eating meat and vegetables and no sugar and did that for an entire year. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be like three months, but it kept working and I just stick, stuck with it and did it for a whole year. So that's basically eating from the source? No sugar at all. Like we're saying like, 
no dressings, no sauces, just tea, lemon water, water, steamed veggies, and meat. And no processed? Nothing. Grains or things like that. Yep. Because grains have sugars in them. Even fruit. I couldn't, I didn't even eat fruit because fruit has so much sugar in it. I could eat cranberries. That sounds joyful. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty hardcore. But once you get past that, like, first couple weeks, you find what works and you learn these awesome new ways of cooking and preparing food and you start feeling so good. Yeah, I was going to say you feel the effects of it and that sort of sells itself to do it. Did you, was there a time you sort of fell off the wagon and pulled yourself back on or? I was pretty crazy committed. Like I did it for a year. And then after that, like I actually remember going to Europe for, we were filming in Europe and it was so hard to do. In Chamonix, it was like, oh, here's bread and sweets and beer. And and I was like, oh, my gosh, can I please have a salad with a piece of grilled chicken on it? Like, it, it was not fun, that's for sure. So after that trip, I was like, all right, I've done it for a year. I'm good. Like, And I just, I felt the effects. I saw my body change. I've got my energy back, my adrenals back. Did you stop drinking during that time also? Yeah, no alcohol at all. That'll cut out lots of sugars. <laughs> totally. But there's also, there's a balance there because then you you have stress when you do something that intense, you know, and stress is the biggest killer. So I do, I felt the effects and I know that I need, I've now just taken into my lifestyle of like, just keep it constant of clean eating. Just don't go too big or too low. Like it's moderate. Mm-hmm. Just keep it moderate, mindful, right? Sort of intentional. Intentional for sure. We are what we eat. Like put the good things in your body. I've heard you say that you have a spirit animal. Can you speak to that? (laughs) Yes. My spirit animal is a fruit bat. I love that. Recently, my sister sent me this video of fruit bats. They're like, we're filmed upside down and it looks like they're at like a goth rave because they're just all kind of like, I'll send it to you. It's so funny. (laughs) I'm a fruit bat. I just love that you're a fruit bat. It's not like a hawk or a raven. It's a fruit bat. I mean, they have sonar. Come on. They're like, these cute little fox faces and they've got just this like hidden power of they're so important for the world they eat the bad bugs like i have a, a fruit a bat box at my garden and my garden has just gone crazy with that bat, bat, bat box they sleep upside down they have sonar which is just wild to me and i think they're pretty cute because they're little foxes with wings it's like do you like the night I do like the night. Yes. I, I'll admit here, I'm a burner. I go to Burning Man. Oh, I love the nighttime. I really can come alive and I love dancing under the stars. I love gazing up into the night sky and just feeling that really small zoom out perspective of feeling a little bit insignificant and a part of this bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else about sort of the way that you envision your next chapters, yourself in five years, 10 years, or the legacy that you are building off of, but also that you're putting your own chapter in that you want to speak about? Yeah, I've got a lot of goals. Goals are really important to me. And right now it's incorporating flying and skiing and and storytelling and flying, using flight to access these really amazing mountain ranges and skiing them. I would really like to do it with an electric plane and hopefully some days we can get there. And I think a lot of people realize when you're in those small aircrafts, you're using about the same amount of fuel as you would in a car. Um, You're covering way more distance. (laughs) They're not that bad, actually, when you look at the, the big picture, the small planes. So with that getting out of the way, I just have to, you know, justify my actions. (laughs) Yeah, we do. Right. But I also think we can, you know, we shouldn't, we need to push this aviation into more environmental consciousness and feel like it's been a little bit, kind of gotten a little bit of a pass card because it is so important for economy and, but aviation in general, in this country, it seems like in France, they do a lot more in Germany that's progressive and there's there's some but i feel like we're there to nudge right yeah we oh we got a nudging for sure we need this and support the electric planes that are on the rise they're they're being made they're just getting tested and i don't i don't want to be the tester 
Um, so yeah, using aviation for skiing, I've got this really cool trip this this spring where my friend Carrie Smith and I are going to fly around the ring circle in Iceland for first ascents. It's called the land beneath us and using planes to access mountain terrain. Oh, wow. That's going to be incredible. Yeah, it's going to be really great. And it's telling, you know, a story that some deep history. And I think planes can be really useful tools for surveying of environmental damages. So that's part of that. Yeah, what other goals do I have? Right now, it's my head is it's just, you know, so deep in the book studying for this IFR. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So you're going in for your, your IFR. No, I have my written exam next week. Yeah. You have your written next week. Okay. All right. It's a lot of information. I'll nail it. Yeah. Yeah. We just need a passing grade. You'll, you'll nail it. <laughs> you'll do great. We have to pass it, right? Totally. Any other advice you have or any advice you have for your younger self? Yeah. I, you know, I try and listen to her a lot. My nine-year-old, six-year-old Lexi. I think she'd be really proud of me. But I also know that whenever I get out of whack or out of balance or drawn in too many directions, like that's who I listen to. And that's my true self is my young, younger self. So I would tell the young girls growing up to never lose that, like stay true to who you are. So many times people want to tell you how you should live. They, you know, should all over you. And yeah, don't allow people to should all over you. Absolutely. Let it slide off, right? Yeah, take chances, follow your dreams. And, you know, my mom's always told me to just put one foot in front of the other and we can do hard things. Just try as hard as you can. If you want it, go get it. How do you navigate social media? I think it's a pretty awesome tool we have. I'm more of an Instagrammer. I don't have Twitter. Facebook's kind of fallen behind on me a little bit, but it's kind of like my journal. I look, it's so nice for me personally to look back at all of my experiences. Um, it's a photo journal. And I love sharing with the world with it. Sometimes I will admit I get, I spend way too much time on that thing on Instagram. And there's definitely an addiction that is developing. And I need to sometimes put my phone down in the other room. Finding those boundaries are, they're elusive sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> boundaries are so important. But I think it's a really powerful tool. I love being able to check up on people and being inspired and following my greatest influences and people I admire, see what they're doing. It keeps me accountable and keeps my goals ever present. Do you have any um, books you're reading these days you'd love to recommend? Yes. Well, I just finished last night Untamed by Glennon Doyle, which, yeah, she's wonderful. That's so funny. I was just listening to something of hers the other day. Yeah. Yeah, really. It's been really, really great. What else? Oh, I I revisited a book before that. It's called The River Why. It's my favorite book of all time, all time. And I read it in high school and was like, I need to read that again. It's it's just some of the best piece of literature, I think. Hmm. He has such a good way of describing the river. It's about this young boy that goes fishing and kind of the process with the river. I think they made a movie about it, which I would not watch the movie, just read the book. Read it. Yeah. How can we find out more about? you and your projects and your movies? Instagram. I think I put do a really good job of keeping things going on Instagram. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be filming with Blank Collective. It's a film crew out of Whistler, Canada. And some really rad group of dudes. And my friend Anna and I were the, the two girls that are filming with them. Hopefully we'll get a couple more in there. Uh, their film's called Cascadia. So it's about the Pacific Northwest. I'm looking forward to trying to get into the North Cascades. I've done some flying. I'm actually releasing a short film next week called Recon about flying over the North Cascades and looking for lines. And hopefully this winter we can go back and ski them. Awesome. Yeah. What are you actually flying in when you're doing that filming? I'm a 172. Yeah, just the rental here. I'm actually, after this, I'm taking two friends up. We're going to go over the North Cascades because you can see the sun coming in. It's we, haven't, we don't get sun this time of year here very often. I know. I'm seeing the sun beaming across your face. And I'm thinking, wow, the Pacific Northwest has more sun than... Yeah. So we're going to go up over Mount Baker and Adams and one of my favorite... Yeah. The mountains up there. Spectacular. Yeah. 
So awesome. Yeah. Oh, Lexi, thank you so much for sharing your energy and your thoughtfulness and your family legacy story and your visions for the future. I just, we need you. You need to stay safe for us. And um, thank you so much for sharing. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's, it means the world to me that this podcast exists and you've created a space to tell these amazing women's stories. And I'm, I'm just humbled to be included. So thank you so much. Oh, wow. Likewise. Thank you for listening to the When Women Fly podcast. My hope is that you leave this conversation with a sense of curiosity and empowerment to hold on to what is important and let go to what weighs you down. Stare fear in the face. If you like this episode of the When Women Fly podcast, be sure to share and subscribe and let us know what you think. We love feedback. Be brave, be bold, and fly. See you next time.